Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 57 of the podcast, the topic is the future of family office investing. Our guest is Sidney Whitley, CIO in the private office of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Salman bin Abdullah bin Hamad Al Khalifa from the Kingdom of Bahrain. In this conversation, we talk about the future of family office investing, trends in family office investment portfolios, global shifts, industry trends, foresight, tech investing, fintech, and blockchain new consumption patterns for multimedia and film and other emerging sector plays. We talk about diversification during times of turmoil and about Bahrain's economic vision 2030. We also talk about the changing nature of the petroleum industry. What does the next decade look like? A word from one of our key partners, the Ritosa Summit is the leading family office conference, the largest and most influential gathering of family wealth, representing 4.5 trillion US dollars and some 1,000 family offices. Throughout the year, summits are held in Monte Carlo, Monaco, Dubai, UAE, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and with virtual keynote panels keeping the community connected in between. Sydney, I'm so happy to have you here with us uh, today on Futurized. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So what I thought we would do is discuss a little bit what's happening, you know, in the field of, of uh, family offices and, you know, what the future looks like a little bit. Um, sure. Interesting. But first of all, I, I wanted to, to think a little bit about your background because, you know, to, to find a Dutch person in a uh, Bahraini family office um, who I understood it wasn't really your background. Yeah, it's... Um, How did it, you get here? It's one of those confluences of many, many different events. Um, so I am Dutch. Um, I don't look it. Um, I'm about a meter too short to be a real Dutch person. Uh, but I can <laughs> verify that I'm Dutch. Um, we moved to Bahrain when I was three years old. Um, my dad found a job there, um, not in the oil and gas business, oddly enough, but in the flowers business. Uh, because at that time, the, uh, the hotels and the airlines were just starting to boom in this area and they wanted to have fresh cut flowers everywhere and beautiful gardens and things like that. So my dad came here to actually help build up a network, import flowers from Holland. You know, that's what we're very well known for. So I grew up in Bahrain um, and I stayed there until I was 17. Then I moved back to Holland. Uh, I never went to university, unfortunately, uh, because I didn't really speak Dutch. So I just started working, and my idea was to work for a year, pick up the language, and then uh, go to university, pick a major, the normal stuff. But I got addicted to working. Uh, I really enjoyed working, and I found that I was just very good at, uh, at doing things. So I got promoted quite quickly, and... Um, I never really looked back. Uh, I moved back to Bahrain in 2009. And as you mentioned, it's not easy um, to get into a family office, first of all, but into a royal family office is quite difficult. There's a lot of trust issues. 
Um, it's not like you can just you know put out an ad to a recruitment agency. Yeah, I wouldn't assume that uh, at all. You know, you don't do a ZipRecruiter, for example. So it's it's just purely by coincidence. I was unhappy where I was working at the time, which was in the environmental field in uh, in Saudi Arabia. And I just happened to call a friend, and I didn't even know he worked for a royal family office uh, because he always represented himself as you know working for a very specific company under the umbrella. And uh, he just so happened to want to move back to Malaysia, and they wouldn't let him go until he found a replacement. So, <laughs> so you needed each other. Uh, yeah, very much so. And it, it's it, this all happened within a, two or three days of each other. So it's it's very, um, you know, it's it's very interesting how that works. And he said, please come tomorrow, we're going to interview you. I said, oh, okay. And, uh, and that's how I started. I started out in the oil and gas sector uh, of, let's say, the portfolio companies, uh, because it takes a long time to you know, uh, gain trust. And my background is not really investing, but it's where I sort of found my passion. Um, I've always been good with numbers, but I never really understood what investing was. I know this sounds really at odds with each other, but you know when you when you work in a corporate environment for a long time, the the, the money element is sort of removed. It sort of becomes mechanical, if that makes sense. Sure. So I never really thought about investing or what investing means or what it means to you know put in a thousand and get two thousand back or to build something from nothing. Uh, I never really had that entrepreneurial background. Uh, I've always been interested in things you know technology and and, and stuff like that, um, but but. I sort of found my passion there again. So I started pursuing, you know, my MBA, pursuing my, my CFA, and sort of really building up that sort of academic knowledge. And at the same time, you know, pouring over entrepreneurial literature, uh, investment literature, and, 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 and uh, that's where we are today. It's, 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 I've been amazingly lucky. That's all I can say. Tell me, well, that is a fantastic story. Tell me a little bit more about where, where you are today. So you, you, you are... Um, Obviously involved with a, a very reputable family office in Bahrain. You are involved both on their industry side, so you mm -hmm. you, you actually run companies w for them, and then you invest. Uh, you know, in what exactly? So, so on the company side, um, I don't run the day to day. Uh, that would be impossible. Uh, but where you would traditionally have a board, uh, I sort of become the board on behalf of the chairman. Um, and I steer them, and, and we sort of look at you know the strategic outlay for the next five, ten years. Um, sometimes our portfolio companies need investment as well. Um, so on a micro level, we're always investing and reinvesting into our companies. Um, in terms of investing, and I'm not going to speak for worldwide family offices. I'm going to very specifically speak about the Middle East. Um, we are still very traditional, uh, meaning you know bricks and mortar. Um, if you can touch it, if you can feel it, it's investable. Right. Um, there's not a very mature mentality around venture investing or even tech investing. And that is really where my passion lies. So I'm trying to pull specifically our family office forward. Um, but that's really why I also attend conferences like this to talk about things like digital assets mm. and, and moving into a more, um, I wouldn't say risky investment strategy, but a more forward looking investment strategy. And I think, oddly enough, that's one of the good things that's coming out of COVID. Hmm. Um, although I don't like to say things like that. Uh, it's been terrible worldwide. It's destroyed a lot of wealth. But one of the good things is we are fast forwarding. People love to say 10 years. I'm thinking it's going to be 20 years. 
Um, how so 20 years? I mean, are you talking in terms of how the technology is advancing or do you mean culturally also in the priorities? For instance, in your case with the uh, family office moving from investing purely in extractive industries, mm -hmm. in your case, I guess, and then perhaps, you know, diversification meaning other very big corporate conglomerate type industries mm -hmm. to moving into technology in a big way. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I would say it's a little bit of both. So in terms of, forget technology for a minute. Think again about the stuff we just described, brick and mortar. Um, you know, brick and commercial real estate is going to be devastated. It, it just is. Um, there will always be a place for commercial real estate, but the sprawling malls, and especially you've been here now in Dubai for uh, uh, probably a few, a few days. days. Yeah. So how many malls have you seen? Well, many. I just haven't been inside them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's lots and lots of malls, yeah. which traditionally has been fine. Yeah. Um, people love to go out shopping. Um, but I think that has pretty much forever changed. Um, you'll still go out to have fun. They will be entertainment destinations. But these sort of sprawling um, retail gargantuan buildings with endless shops, right. I don't think they're going to survive. Well, it's going to be hard uh, to, you know, if you're going to actually... Uh, operate them in some safe way, right? You, you need to completely retrofit them or or build new new ones that are, you know, if we are living with this virus. Uh, um, you know, it's not even, I don't it's even... maybe culturally, you're saying? I don't even specifically mean the virus. So, and I'm going to speak anecdotally first, which is my wife has never ordered as much online as she has now. And she's loving it. She doesn't want to ever go into a shop again. Right, So it, it is sort of a cultural shift. It's not even, will the malls ever be safe again? Will they ever be attractive as a destination again? And, and they will be. I mean, you know, you'll still want to maybe go to the cinema or go to a restaurant or what have you. But sort of having, you know, 250 stores to buy a shirt kind of seems ridiculous now. Hmm. Right? And I think in the future, hmm. it will continue to seem even more ridiculous. Hmm. So, so... Well, well, if you're if you're right about that, that has massive uh, significance on on the re commercial real estate market. I I, I think so. Um, I think hotels are going to be forever changed, and the reason I say hotels are forever changed is the the biggest holder of rooms in the world today is Airbnb. And I don't know if you've ever used an Airbnb, sure. um, but even before this whole COVID crisis. I was addicted to Airbnbs. Um, the only reason I'm in a hotel today is because someone else is paying for it. Uh, if it right. were up to me, I yep. would just take an Airbnb. And I think that sort of um, that unique experience you get with it, with with an Airbnb, making which makes sure that you know you're safe, you have a safe environment for your family. I think people are going to get addicted to that. And I think well, hotels, there's also less people involved, right? So you know, it's true. You're always going to be in someone else's place, and you don't know fully exactly what's happened, you know, in terms of cleaning of that place. But with with better, uh, you know, services there, at least you're not in again like a mall-like environment sure. with well, more many many more people. I, I believe what Airbnb will do ultimately is they will create a badge, which is you know, if you as an operator can sort of guarantee that you know X Y Z steps were done, you'll get you know the ultimate. Uh, cleanliness badge or sterilization badge or whatever it may be. And people want people want to be certified. Yeah. And and I think Airbnb has been smart enough to to sort of see those trends. 
you know, they've, they've made super hosts, um, they've done super experiences and, and things like that. They're, they're smart enough to, to realize that this is an opportunity. So you are seeing a lot of advantages uh, business-wise in terms of kind of ushering us into a, new, into a new time. But if you look at family offices, isn't it true that for a little while now, at least the more forward-thinking uh, people, including some who come to this uh, summit, have been discussing investing in other things than real estate and extractive industries for some years, but m maybe not for long. So I've heard a lot of talk as well. I've seen very little actual investing, right? Um, I, I truly think that's going to change. I think, I think we have literally reached an inflection point. Hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I see that in all kinds of industries, you know, even just in the car industries, right? We've literally just reached an inflection point. And I think you're definitely going to see much more investing into these alternative asset classes as, you know, the real estate goes barren, as the flats are empty, as the malls are empty, um, as office spaces disappear. But, but if these investment strategies are going to change, won't the entire approach to investing also have to change? Because, you know, speaking as someone who is involved in startup investments and startup partnerships, even just um, on the corporate side, it has taken corporate investors I would say around about a decade to fully, fully, I say fully, to, to start to understand startups, right? Cor even corporates, and I, we're not, family offices is kind of once removed, right? Sure. Corporates, it took them a decade to really understand the logic of startups and how do you invest in one? Why are you investing in one? Uh, even during or, you know, how do you get value out of it, right? Which is partnerships sure. and, and stuff like that. How is that? And even, you know, how do you get access I think you and I had a little discussion on the phone about deal flow and you said deal flow is like water. And I wanted to challenge you on that because if deal flow is like water, that's fine. But, you know, water's water, but deals are different. So, you know, sure. surely you don't have access to every deal. You have access to uh, enough deals, perhaps. Sure. But in technology, if you're not in the right deal, you don't get the right alpha. Sure. So that's a lot of questions. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I'm going to take them one by one. Um, first of all, I'd say actually corporations are probably at a disadvantage to family offices because their time horizons are way shorter. Right. Um, the only mentality shift that has to change in, in, in family office, in my opinion, is you have to stop seeing your assets as sort of uh, fixed income, right? You have to shift it from thinking about bonds and think, moving it more to equity side. Yeah. So if you have a building, you start to think of it like a fixed income. I invest X and I'll get Z per month. It's, uh, you know, 10%, 20%, whatever the calculation may be. Startup investing is completely different. And I would say if you are not committed to it, go invest in a fund that is specialized in it. Go invest in a venture fund. Go invest in 10 venture funds, right? Because you definitely will not be able to... Um, find one unique startup, invest in it once, and have it have that, you know, 10,000 times outcome. It, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. The only way to do it is to invest in a thousand companies and see 990 of them just fail. And, and but do you see uh, family offices n going into venture funds in a bigger way than before? Yeah, like percentage-wise of portfolio, how, how much do you think a, a reasonable exposure w w is these days or, or, or now, should be now going forward? It really depends on the size of your office, risk, appetite, existing portfolio. Safely, I would say 10%. Put 10% into venture. How does that match with other asset classes? Right, right now, like real estate, what is 
Over um, 50? Definitely over 50. For yeah. most family Maybe offices here. Maybe even 75? Probably, because most, yeah. most family offices probably got rich because of real estate. Yeah. Right. So it, it'll make That's, up a, a huge portion of their portfolio. If not, then oil and gas. Right. And then from oil and gas into real estate. You know, they, they sort of feed off each other. But I think t- 10% would be a good amount. Hmm. Um, it's enough to be interesting. And then your team can be educated hmm. and sort of start to get a feel for it. Because if you're not invested in it, you don't really pay attention to it. Hmm. You know, I mean, I look at a lot of startups, but I don't look at much as the startups as the ones I've invested in. Sure. Those I you know follow religiously. So you have to have your feet in the water. You have to have skin in the game. Mm. Um, you can't just sit on the sidelines and say, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Just, just do it. Um, it's difficult to get even into certain venture funds because, you know, the really good ones, it's like a private club. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not very easy. They get oversubscribed. Yeah. They get oversubscribed very easily. Um, even when they do shoot-off funds or second funds or third funds, there's plenty of cash in the world. So I think that answers the first part of your question. Now, the second part of your question is where you challenged me on sort of the, the uh, deal flow and getting access to deal flow. Yeah. Now, I agree with you. Not all deal flow is the same, 100%. Hmm. Um, and the only way to get really the best of the best of the best deal flow is to really be with a very good venture uh, person because they get to see, you know, they get first look. Um, or to be partnered with a good accelerator or with a good uh, uh, seed stage uh, um uh, company like for example um, we invest with uh, do you know Jason Calacanis mm-hmm. so we invest into his funds and he gets all the best deal flow and therefore we get the best deal flow although I'm sure he gets even better deal flow that he doesn't share with everybody yeah. um, but so there's ways of getting deal flow you don't necessarily have to be in Silicon Valley and in a way it's actually a little bit advantageous mm-hmm. because you miss a lot of the garbage as well mm. Uh, because you have to admit there are a lot of startups which are just a waste of time. Hmm. For sure. Do you do you ever collaborate directly with corporates? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm part of a, a, a corporate environment called Global Corporate Venturing that has similar to this, you know, have uh, annual meetings and stuff. And there's a community of corporate investors. Do you see that family offices and corporates could have something in common when it comes to looking at deals or collaborating? Um, absolutely. I mean, in the end... Everybody's objectives are more or less the same. We want to put X in and we want to triple or quadruple that, hopefully. So as long as those are aligned, uh, there's always a way to work together. The only difference I would say with corporates is with corporates, there's a there's much more of a quarter to quarter mandate, which is difficult in the startup world, in the venture world. I mean, you know, yeah. um, you, you literally cannot judge a company that has potential exponential growth on a quarter to quarter basis. It's just not possible. You know, if you shift the order of magnitude uh, by just one, your whole qu- next three quarters are, are, are messed up. But the exponential growth is still there, right? So I, I would say that as long as it's aligned, the, the, the incentives are aligned, there's definitely a way to work together. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that family offices can learn from corporates for sure and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about so, some of the startups that you have invested in, uh, either Personally, because I understand you, you're also doing a little bit of investing on, on your own or, sure. or that you're getting involved with uh, through your family office. Um, one of my favorite ones right now, and that's just because they secured another round of funding, is Fluent Forever, um, which is, I would say, a much better version of Duolingo, um, which has been, honestly, I, I invested in it before, um, before COVID, 
but it's it's been helped a lot by COVID uh, because people are at home. They're thinking to themselves, what shall I do? Let me learn a language. Um, and while Duolingo is great, um, we actually don't have a free tier. It's, it's just purely subscriber-based. Well, I say we, they. Um, well, that shows you how much you're involved. Ah, that's how passionate I am. Yeah. Uh, I have no influence on management whatsoever. Um, but but, but, but it, it's growing very well. It's one of my favorites. Uh, another one that I really love, but that's because my career started out in logistics, uh, specifically in trucking. Um, so I found a great, uh, great startup called Fleeting, um, which is basically trying to take the archaic way that we manage truckers and fleets of truckers and, and streamline them and make it easier for truckers to find jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really see a lot of potential in that, even in an automated world. Are you uh, investing or thinking about automation largely? I mean, in manufacturing automation, um, robotics? Um, Not really. Augmentation? Like, like I said, we are still very early into dipping our toes in. I mean, it is just you know this year that we've started to venture out into the wild, wild west. Um, so we're not that far yet, but it is sort of on my mind map horizon. Mm. Um, and, and that's automation in everything. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, look at how cars have evolved in the last five years. Mm. Um, and that's nothing compared to how they're going to evolve in the next 10 years. Mm. Um, you're definitely going to see a lot more automated trucking, um, automated driving, robo-taxis, and so on and so forth. I think that one other thing that COVID has sort of done which will definitely accelerate manufacturing trends, is a lot of countries and sovereigns are definitely thinking, how do we re-onshore companies? How do we right. re-onshore manufacturing? Right. And the only way to onshore manufacturing in any cost-effective way is through intense automation. Mm. So, so you're going to see a lot of investment there, mm. for sure. So I, I believe in it. We're not there yet in terms of investing, yeah. uh, but it's a, it's a space I'm intensely watching. Mm. Tell me about this phenomenon that you, you know, you obviously work for a family office, but you are a little bit more directly involved, obviously, in the, in the deals, but, but in this case, more in the trends. So the trends that you have seen because of your work day to day, how is it for you personally, but also kind of in general in the Middle East when you work with family offices? And I'm understanding that they sometimes take foreign operators to help them out. But even if not, right, there's someone who's actually the CEO or who's executing on behalf of a family. Mm. How is that dialogue? What, what are the kinds of discussions uh, that go into this? I mean, you have a little bit of an educational role as well, right? Uh, for sure. Um, see, the thing is, think about the last, let's say, seven years. More has changed in the Middle East in the last seven years than the last you know, 40 years before that, because the trend was always up and to the, uh, to the right in terms of income from you know, oil revenues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and not just from exploitation of oil or you know, getting it out of the ground and exporting it, but actually refining it, refining it into high-class products, high-grade products. Um, so no one really had to pay attention to any kind of other technological trend. It doesn't, re doesn't really matter. Electricity is cheap. We don't need to think about solar power. Um, labor is super cheap. Mm. Um, so we don't have to think about automating anything. So, so why then this change? Was it, is it simply a factor of the oil price going sort of down? Or, or what sure. are the for, other things? For sure, 100%. So you know how things work. When, 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 when there's too much of something, there's no efficiency. 
So when there's too much money in a system, there's no efficiency in the system. Well, you know, it's funny you say this. I, I have never been to the UAE or, or Dubai before, but I'm Norwegian. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have made some parallels. Uh, oh, interesting. You know, I, I think like the Emirates and, and Bahrain and other countries here are, are almost like, uh, they're, they're very similar in, their, in the source of their wealth. And they found it in, at similar times in their history. Um, maybe here, you know, obviously a little earlier, but uh, it has had a transformative effect, but in different ways, right? And in Norway, not so much of the money has gone into actually uh, like it has in Dubai. And I, I don't know so much about Bahrain. You can you tell me about the changes that are happening now. Um, but I was sort of making the reflection that Dubai is kind of like a city of the future. Uh, almost kind of like, also kind of like capital gone unhinged saying, but we're going to spend this and we're going to kind of sure. make the future. Norway isn't quite there. Right? They, they put it into mm. a fund thinking a rainy day fund. Yeah. And, and now, you know, it's raining, right? COVID and 100%. other things. And, and, you know, we're, we're getting it back because, uh, you know, guess what country can afford to, to vaccinate the population for free. Yeah. That's Norway. So, and I'm and I'm assuming some of the Emirates will will, will apply oh, sure. similar policies. But it is interesting that you just you know you made me think mm -hmm. of it when, when you've had one resource mm -hmm. for thirty years or or more. Hey, since the I mean Bahrain has had it since the thirties, right? But I mean so, in those days, you know, oil didn't really have many uses. It was just bunkering and you know a little bit of trains, a little bit of cars, tanks. Uh, that's it, really. Um, I would say, you know, it's very interesting. Bahrain was actually, you won't believe it, Bahrain was actually the most advanced country in the whole Middle East uh, up until about the late 80s. So what happened? Well, so we were the first to discover oil. Uh, we were the first country to have air conditioning. Um, first con con uh, country to have schools, um, free healthcare, and so on and so forth. The, the challenge is, I mean, that never really went away. We still have that sort of wealth. Everyone else just became much richer, <laughs> as tends to happen. Um, at some point, we were the, you know, the center of banking in the Middle East, which is a confluence of two events. One is the war in Lebanon, uh, which caused you know, all the banks, because that used to be the heart of banking in the Middle East, caused all the banks to look for a new home, as it were. So Bahrain welcomed them with open arms because we had a very liberal policy. And... Um, like I said, everyone else sort of grew around us, but it used to be that the leaders would send their kids to Bahrain to be educated uh, from, you know, Saudi or from, uh, from Emirates or from Oman even. So it's, 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 like you say, it's very interesting um, what happens when you get a lot of resources suddenly. Um, the only thing I would say that's probably different with Norway as well is we don't have taxes. That is kind of different. That is kind of different. Where are you guys at now? <laughs> Embarrassingly, uh, there's a high number. But how does that even work? What do you mean? Well, well, there's no taxes. But what is, how does the government run? Um, so, so the government budgets are just made up of income from oil and gas. Right. So, so they own they own the oil and gas assets. Right. Um, I mean, they're run like a private company. Yeah. But the owner is the government, so it comes into the government budget. Right. That's why, so... Yeah, but okay, so I see what you're saying. Because, you know, in Norway, the taxes are used to run the country yeah. and the oil revenue goes into a fund. Exactly. You know, and there's a very, very small amount of the uh, 
the revenue that can be used, uh, you know, for for day to day, and that's regulated. And you know, this was a big debate, obviously, at some point. I I think maybe a very smart investment. Well, we'll see. Here's the smart part of what Norway did. So at some point, the governments here started running on uh, on budgets of you know ninety dollar oil, one twenty dollars oil, um, crazy numbers. Yeah. And that's not to say that when the oil is pulled from the ground, it's not profitable. You know, at two dollars, Saudi is still profitable. Um, it just means that they can't balance the government budget, right? So that means you have to start cutting costs in housing, uh, medical salaries, and so on and so forth. So I would say that probably what you've done is very wise. Put it all aside, and, and to be honest, two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen was sort of the years that the sovereign wealth funds here started to really flex their muscles. Yeah. You know, Mubadla, which is the sovereign wealth fund of, uh, of Abu Dhabi, um, actually has a really good venture arm. Um, and they invest into a lot of different kinds of companies. Um, even PIF, so this, which is the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia. I mean, we don't know for sure how much it is, but I would estimate they probably have around 20, no, about a trillion dollars at their, at their disposal mm-hmm. uh, for investing in the country and outside the country. Yeah. So... Probably we're going to f- start following more the Norway model than you following our model, I would say. Hmm. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about how you see that the, the region operating. Because, you know, to outsiders, it's slightly opaque. Uh, obviously, you'd have to study each, you know, each, each country in the Middle East separately because sure. you're, you're kind of your own logic. Mm-hmm. How is it that it seems to me as an outsider that this trend that you're talking about is largely happening across the Middle East, this idea that we are going to diversify. Is it, uh, is it sort of for the same reason that you just outlined with purely. Bahrain? It's purely so because the logic of, in all these economies, it sort of works the same way. 100%. And, and that's, again, if you have lots of money coming from a single source, you don't need to think about mm-hmm. diversification. Although, you know, uh, let's say, for example, Bahrain, because we only produce around 50,000 barrels a day, plus or minus, um, we've had to think about diversification much earlier because our budgets are much smaller than the surrounding countries. Right. Um, so we do have, let's say, a very mature aluminum smelter, uh, which has been there since you know the early 80s. Um, we do have uh, a lot of different manufacturing companies, mm. um, so, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, isn't isn't there a much softer transition uh, surely happening also where you don't go straight to the most risky tech startup? I mean, there there's a way to kind of go to more advanced oh, oil sure. and gas products and, and derivatives and, and uh, you know, refined products as you... Uh, for sure. You know, I mean... And manufacturing would be, hmm. I guess, more a, a more sort of sure, gradual but, step. But what I would say is probably... And, and I'll speak now just as, as someone who lives in Bahrain, because I'm not so familiar with the Dubai scene. If you, if you sort of encourage you know, the startup space and the fintech space, and those kind of things, you start developing these young entrepreneurs who are going to build those companies. So yes, there is a strategy for manufacturing. I mean, that's why we have you know, fiberglass manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, lots of different kinds of manufacturing going on, as well as expansion of banks as well as expansion of lots of things. But the CBB, the Central Bank of Bahrain, at some point said, um, we need to become the center of banking again. Hmm. And you're not going to become the center of banking again by brute forcing it. You can only do that if you lead in technology, if you lead in openness, et cetera, et cetera. So we probably have one of the most liberal, I would say, policies towards 
uh, fintech adoption, uh, mm. cryptocurrency adoption, blockchain technology adoption, etc. Mm. Uh, we have a very liberal sandbox, uh, regulatory sandbox, yeah. uh, where people are allowed to play in. And if they do no harm, um, they're set out into the wild, which is why we had the first real operational crypto exchange launched in Bahrain, even though it's the smallest market. Because mm. they were allowed to play and you know dip their toes in for a year, prove to the regulators that it's not harmful, it can be managed, uh, you can do all the due diligence on your customers. Um, you don't necessarily know where the Bitcoin goes, when it goes, but you know who sent it. So I would say it's it's still early days, but I think this is going to set us on a path which will take us, I don't know, 20 years faster than anyone else, just because of these sort of open policies that we have. So what does the future look like for Bahrain? I know there's some vision work going on. Mm -hmm. There are some policy documents about, you know, 2030, 2040, sure. 2050. Um, look, everyone had a plan and then COVID hit. So now we have to sort of rethink our plans. Yeah. You know, technology comes forward 10 years, plans go backwards 10 years. Um, uh, look, we have a 2030 vision, sure. Um, and I think, I think more than, than let's say, economical, I would say it's a mindset vision. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to be the most open banking sector in the world. We want to be the most technologically advanced in the world. We want to have the, or in the region rather, we want to have, you know, the most amount of manufacturing in the region and so on and so forth. And we want to have liberal policies to allow investment to come in. So I wouldn't measure, let's say, the vision by, you know, economic outcome, mm -hmm. because today you just can't. But the seeds are being laid that once things, I don't want to say normalize, because who knows what normal means anymore, yeah. but once things stabilize, yeah. those seeds will grow pretty fast. What are the limiting factors in Bahrain or around the Middle East? I mean, it's often claimed, of course, that it's, you know, there's some cultural issues surrounding, you know, legacy families and, and, sure. and things. Would you say that that has been historically kind of the, you know, aside from what we just mm -hmm. talked about, which is the limit, the, the factor of having one, one industry with, you know, such sure. attractive economics, um, but cultural factors, arguably, whether they are real or not, whatever they are, they move slower in sure. theory. What is it that, is it just that the incentives have changed and become so much more attractive that people realize you know, we, it's a trade-off, but we're going to adapt and on balance, sure. even if our culture might have to adapt a little bit, even towards more openness or, uh, you know, less hierarchical. A lot of these structures that are part of traditional sure. cultures and societies, there must be some who are saying, wait a second, this is going fast. Uh, not that I hear of, to be honest with you. So... Probably within individual family offices, you're always going to have a tension. Yeah. There's always a tension. There's a tension between the grandfather, the father, the mother, the kids, the cousins. Mm. There's always going to be a tension. Especially, you know, think about it from this perspective. You have, you know, guys that started businesses in the 40s. Mm. Uh, they are now very old. Never went to university, never went to high school. They just started working when they were you know, 10 years old. Yeah. And yet their grandkids, you know, undergrad from Harvard, uh, grad from MIT, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So there's going to be a huge tension because the difference between those two cultures within the family is huge. Hmm. How do those tensions get resolved? I mean, 
is it essentially just everybody flexes a little because surely you know you come back from Harvard and you have all these visionary sure. ideas you can't really just implement them you know day one how, how does that dynamic work it depends on family office to family office I mean you have um, so so there's for example the Kanu family Kanu family is probably arguably the wealthiest family uh, a merchant family in, in, in the Middle East uh, and they're based in Bahrain. Their family office, you can't even really call it a family office anymore. It's a family corporation. Mm -hmm. And they are so professionally run that, you know, if you um, are a family member, but you're not qualified, you're not working there. Mm. Right? That is different. So, so, so that's one extreme. And then you have the other extreme where it's sort of, you know, my son will become the CEO, even if he wants to be, you know, in a rock band and has literally no interest uh, right. in running a company. Right. So there's, you know, and everything in between. Mostly the way those tensions get resolved is, look, there's a lot of respect here amongst, you know, from younger to elder. Um, you know, you always defer to your elders. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like, you know, my family, you know, you're 18. See you later. <laughs> what, what are you still doing here? Yeah. Why haven't you moved out yet? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not like that here. You know, you still live with your parents, you know, well into your 20s, 30s, and it's fine. You can get married and still live with your parents. So there's a lot of respect. So it tends to get resolved either through mutual respect or, you know, here's 100K, go do it and let me know what happens. Hmm. You know, if he's successful, great. If not, come back and, you know, work in the family business. But there's not really ever family feuds, I would say. There are notable ones, of course. I mean, nobody's perfect. But I would say they're few and far between. I was just thinking, uh, you know, cross families. Mm -hmm. What is the dynamic there in terms of either collaboration cross families, um, cross Emirates? Like, to what extent is this actually a, a region where, I, I believe you, you, you framed it this way for me. You said, well, it's no longer a zero-sum game, and people know that. Yeah. So, so it definitely used to be, right? Because we were all playing, or let's say the families were all playing within their region or within their area or within their country or what have you. So then it, at that point, it is absolutely a zero-sum game because there is limited land to build buildings, as we you know, discussed before, limited opportunity for government contracts, and so on and so forth. There's also an element of tribalism, which is a cultural factor. Um, I mean, I've worked with you know, offices in, in, in Saudi Arabia where you know, a family will literally never work with another family. They just won't. They would rather, you know, hire, you know, a family office from outside to come and work with them uh, than to work with another family office. Um, and, and that's just a cultural tribal thing, but it is changing quite rapidly mm. um, because we're in a global game now. And in a global game, um, even though it seems like globalization is, you know, on the decline, it's really not. Mm. Um, America's globalization is on the decline. Everyone else's is, is, in my opinion, on the rise. So we're playing in a global, you know, in a global playground now, and together we're stronger. Hmm. So, so you are seeing collaborations, and this also comes from the fact that you know, those two, you know, guys or girls went to Harvard together from those two different families, and they have a friendship, and they want to do something together, hmm. and they understand that, you know, this one has skills that that one doesn't have, or you know, this family office has something that that family office doesn't have. Um, so in that respect, it is becoming more open. Not perfect yet, but again, nobody is. If you think about this region in a 
kind of a decade context, where, where do you see this region moving? Is there a, now a unilateral movement towards more globalization and more diversification and the things we have talked about? And, and where would that lead us if, if it continues? Sure. Um, so certainly within the region, um, I think you're going to find a lot more cooperation uh, amongst the GCC countries. Um, okay, existing political tensions notwithstanding. Uh, but I think you will find a lot more cooperation, collaboration. Um, I mean, it is pretty much already a free trade zone. You know, I can manufacture things and just sell them in the UAE, and it's not a problem. I think that will expand, uh, probably to, you know, the, uh, the countries in Lebanon, um, Egypt, and those kinds of countries. I think the new peace deals with, with Israel have, have opened you know, a huge number of doors that we haven't even touched on. Uh, but in terms of technology... That's gotten a lot of attention internationally. Sure. Well, it's huge. I mean, if you had asked me five years ago, because I love to think about the future, you know, where is it going to be? I would have said in the exact same place it's always been. Nowhere. Um, but then I started to see signals. Um, okay, I'm lucky enough to, to work in you know, certain uh, circles. Uh, but I started to see signals. And you know, I have Israeli friends and I was talking to them and they were starting to see signals within their government. And that was, you know, about two years ago. And I said, huh, that's odd. Mm. And then suddenly there's a flight to Abu Dhabi of, you know, a sport minister from Israel to, you know, to have a look at the mosque. I say, well, that's interesting. Mm. That's, uh, you know, and it's not like, um, it, 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 it's nothing to do with trade. It's just a sport minister, just to come and look at a mosque. And you go, okay, but why? And then suddenly it accelerated like you couldn't believe. Um, which is amazing. I mean, for the region, it's really good because there's always been this tension. Um, and and I, I don't want to turn this into a political podcast or anything like that. Um, it's not what we're here to talk about. But I think it frees up a lot of opportunity that were not there before mm. uh, to work with, you know, Israeli technology. I mean, their technology is, is, is quite amazing. Their startup scene is, is, is really amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, to our discussion about startups, that could be a real game changer for the Middle 100%. East because, you know, I, I was going to challenge you on that as well. You know, I, I like to challenge, but, sure. but you know, there, there is this, there have been many countries or cities that wanted to become innovation hubs. Sure. And I've studied most of them and, you know, they all succeed in their own way, but they never succeed the way they thought they would succeed, you know, very rarely because sure. you have to learn that you need to do the game your own way. And then you have to stimulate uh, those founders and they will kind of do, again, they will make their own companies and it won't be, you can't sit down and programmatically say. 100%. But that's is, why it's a policy oriented and not, see, because it's a whole ecosystem, right? Yeah. You can have all the money in the world and you'll still make a terrible startup. You could have the best idea in the world. You don't have money. Nothing's going to happen. You could have the best idea in the world and be a very immature founder and just, you know, spend all that money in a, in a very foolish way. So without that sort of venture guidance, it's a maturing thing. It's going to take time. You need to have every element of the ecosystem there. And I think, and I do believe that the policies that they've put in place, they're not trying to brute force it. They're letting everyone play their own game. Let money go where it will. The government's not picking winners, uh, which you never want. You never want the government to pick a winner. Uh, that, that, that's always a bad sign. And, and they're just letting them play their own game. And, and that's why you have something like a Kareem, which got you know, acquired by Uber. Um, Carriage, which got a, a acquired by, um, I think it was Deliveroo. So 
you are starting to see the, the sort of bigger companies, mature, more mature companies come out. We have a long way to go, no mistake. But what makes Silicon Valley really unique is that ecosystem. And you can't just replicate that. You can't just do copy-paste. That was my point. It, it you can time. do great things, but you have to do different it things. It takes time. And it takes time. And it takes time. As we're looking to the future, sure. building innovation, an ecosystem of innovation throughout the Middle East and indeed perhaps in every city mm-hmm. in the Middle East in a different way. Sure. Um, how is that going to play out? And w- let's look at it this way. What are the places in the Middle East that will benefit the most from this kind of thinking and will kind of evolve the quickest towards sure. some innovative um, structure if you for, were to ask for me, startups? If you were to ask me today, I would say Saudi Arabia will benefit the most. And the reason I say that is because, so Saudi Arabia, like Bahrain, um, has approximately a 60% population of locals. In Dubai, it's like maybe 20%. In Qatar, it's like 10% of locals. So it's a completely different atmosphere. So in Saudi Arabia, we actually need to have Saudis working and Saudis doing things. And these innovation hubs, I believe, are going to have two effects. One, it's going to stimulate young people to really say, okay, uh, I still live at home. I have a little bit of cash, but I have a really good idea. I'm going to try and make it work. And if it doesn't, I'll get my government job or my corporate job or what, you know, what have you. The second thing I think it will do is you have no idea how much stuff still gets done with paper. Uh, I'm serious. I mean, you know, if you don't have a fax, it's, it's, it's odd. Hmm. So innovation hubs, you know, you, you don't have to make the next Uber or the next, you know, huge multi-billion dollar global company, but just a company that can solve small local problems will really help to make the countries better, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, everybody wants to think about, you know, be the next Apple, the next trillion dollar company. It's fine if, you know, if you're a hundred million dollar company working locally to just improve the way that the country operates and get more efficiency out of the country itself. Mm. So I would say Saudi benefits the most, maybe Oman as well. Um, but in the end, all of them do. And any country that has an innovation center and an innovation mindset mm. and that doesn't just, you know, tax startups into oblivion, um, you know, a friend of mine was telling me the worst place he's ever had a startup is France. He says, great people, wonderful people. But I had a startup of three people, three employees. One was a rotten apple. I couldn't fire him. It created such an amount of tension in the company that I just had to close it. Right? So you have to stimulate these kind of small companies to come up with new ideas, to get in, in the case of France, you know, maybe the next Renault or the next huge industry out of France. And the same thing is with the local, the local businesses here. You, you have to stimulate it. You have to build legislation and incentives. And people have to see the examples too, right? So a Kareem does help, but, Big time. but they were acquired. So again, you know, there, there sure. needs to be companies that become their own powerhouses sure. and that can then spill over and inspire uh, a lot of others. You, you, you've uh, talked a good game for Bahrain. You've kind of uh, talked them up. In, it's sort of saying that that could be uh, I'm one not of the sponsored, centers. by the way. I'm not no, paid. no, I understand that. <laughs> what are some of the other places that will benefit the most? I mean, Dubai arguably already has, mm. uh, or, or at least before the last few years, was kind of the, 
the one in the lead in the sense that sure. they had embraced a lot of these cosmopolitan tendencies, uh, both in culture, commerce and, and innovation, arguably. Yeah. Um, but now you're saying this process is going to start happening and maybe mushrooming a little bit across the Middle East. What are some other cities in particular you think where you see, you know, similar to the U.S., there's not just Silicon Valley anymore, sure. right? There's kind of five, six, seven, eight very powerful innovation ecosystems, you yeah, know, be sure. it Austin, Boston, New York, Chicago, and then even now Southern California really blossoming then, of course, around you know, Microsoft, Seattle, you know, area. For sure. Um, um, it's difficult to say. So, so, for example, if I were to say, you know, Bahrain, we just have one city. Um, yeah. Saudi Arabia has three cities. Uh, Dubai is a city. So, so it's hard to say um, because the center of everything that's happening is literally in, in, in the places that we just mentioned. Um, but the United Arab Emirates is not just Dubai. There's also Abu Dhabi. There's also Sharjah, Al Ain. Uh, those kind of places. Um, I think what, what what Saudi Arabia is trying to do. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Neom, but it's you know the city of the future. I have. Um, have you had any involvement with that, or are you tracking it? Uh, I'm tracking it very, very loosely. Um, it's, that was it's, one of my ambitions with this trip to get a little closer on some people who know something about <clears throat> that, because it would be a fantastic sure. interview for uh, you know for Futurize to to think about that city. Sure. Um, I could, I could get you someone, yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, but 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 you think that's real? It's not just a vision. It's this because it's you know the I've read I've read yeah. the vision statement. I have watched the videos. It's, it's I have seen the PR. Mm. The PR is fantastic. It's there. So so I, I always liken it. Okay, so I worked in environment for a long time. Okay, um, at oil refineries, and oil refineries are always 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 top notch on environment until the oil price goes down, and then nobody cares. Uh, I, I'm, I'm being you know, purposely, but, but it's yeah. similar with these things. So Mazdar was the original city of the future, right. if you remember in Abu Dhabi. I remember that. Yeah. Um, and then the oil prices went down. We had the crisis, and so on and so forth. Now, it's still there, but it's not what the vision was. Now, I'm worried. That what is it now? I haven't been in a long time. Yeah. Um, I think they still have a university and I think they still have one or two projects, but it's not sort of the oasis of technology, uh, technological and zero emissions and green future that it was meant to be. It's just not there yet because of lack of investment. I'm worried the same will happen to Neil uh, because these things are not cheap. You know, they're very, very expensive. And when you have on the one hand, you know, a population that you need to take care of, mm. you have to make tough decisions. You know, let's just say that it did happen almost the way that the vision statement says. Would it then be worth it? Or do you think even the idea is a little um, too large for itself? So I'm not trying to lead the question. People, I, I literally don't know. I'm just I, so, I really am just trying to understand it. No, no worries. Um, the, the way I like to think about it is like this, because people always say that about Dubai. You know, it's just going to it's going to fall apart. Right. And it almost did, right, around the financial crisis, but that sure. was kind of un, unbeknownst to, to, sort of to, to anyone. Sure. Um, and they got out of it, and maybe there's another crisis coming. We don't know. But people like to make fun of Dubai. I know a lot of people that like to make fun of Dubai. Oh, the biggest building in the world, who cares? Oh, you know, they have, have you seen the picture frame? There's these big picture frame buildings. 
I you might you might have seen it on the way from the airport to here. Yeah, it's think, like a big golden frame. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. I was right. wondering, you know, the uh, Arc de Triomphe. Uh, you know, sure. Reminded me of Paris. Um, that's going to be my point. People are making fun of it because, like, why? What's the point? It's a lot of money. But people said the same thing about the Eiffel Tower. Now you would not dream of going to Paris as a tourist and not going to the Eiffel Tower. You, in, you know, in, in 30 years, you won't dream of coming to the Middle East without going to the Burj Khalifa or without going to the picture frame to take the picture of the city and, you know, posing with it, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, I think visionary cities like Neon, they sort of put a line in the sand of, you know, this is where we want to be. Mm. And it makes a statement. And, and I believe that we, we can, you know, especially as technologists, you know, we can sort of make fun of it or, you know, think about it like, oh, it'll never happen or it's too mm. difficult. But I think if they achieve it, it's really going to sort of put them on the map as a country that really wants to push itself forward. Mm. But you studied scenario theory, I know, for your sure. master's. So what are the different scenarios? Because there's, there is, of course, the progress scenario. What is the, uh, you know, what is the alternate scenario here? Uh, I mean, you know, there's the four quadrants and you're going straight to the doom and gloom. No, I'm saying there are other, there's, there's, you, we have talking, yep. we've been talking about the visionary uh, scenario, sure. but there are at least, you know, two or three others. Sure. I, I mean, look, the, l l let's say we go with the middling scenario, because gloom and doom is, is literally war, which I'm, I'm not equipped to talk about. It's not so interesting to talk yeah. about either. So l let's um, settle for some of the others. I, I would say probably, you know, oil prices stay quite low. Uh, governments have to ban balance their budget somehow. Um, they continue to try to diversify. Um, you know, governments are just made of people and you can have visionary people or not, but they're just people. And they can also become bullish at some point and bearish at some point. And they might say to themselves, well, we could put a lot more money into Neon, but we could also build another hospital or, you know, go into steel manufacturing, which we need or, and so on and so forth. Right. So I would say the middling scenario is where they just go halfway and I don't believe halfway is going to make a successful city out of Neom, which will mean it's just going to be, in my view, a white elephant. Hmm. Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, I haven't really planned the scenario out of my mind. No, I'm taking the, to taking the data points. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it would end up being a white elephant. Um, especially with these kind of cities, it's all or nothing, right? Hmm. Which is why Dubai went as far as it went. Hmm. You know, it's, it, it's all or nothing. You're either on the map or you're not. My last question for you, Go for it. Sydney, is going to be, if you want to try to stay up to date on the Middle East, mm -hmm. on family office developments here, on innovation, where should one go? Where do you go when you're, you, you obviously have unique access to individuals sure. that are shaping this process, you know, both, you know, locally and, and, and through your connections in, in, in the region, but sure. for others who are more outsiders and they want to kind of tap into this region. What are the best ways to understand innovation in the Middle East right now? Uh, that's a very good question. Look, there's very good websites right now that actually track startups throughout the Middle East um, that actually visit from time to time. Um, you know, their startup, uh, which follows all the startups in, 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 in the Middle East uh, and has a look at how they get funded. Uh, sort of, let's say, a very, uh, a very early stage, you know, crunch base kind of thing. Um, the, the best way to really get your tap on it is just come to the Middle East. You just have to come. There, there's no other way to really get a feel for the place. 
um, because the media doesn't really help you. You know, I, I always, I always, I always laugh when I watch uh, Mission Impossible. I think it was five or six or four. I don't really remember. Where um, you know you have Tom Cruise running out of the tallest building in the world, and there's this big sandstorm, and he runs into a market with camels. Yes. And I, I don't know. Have you been to the Burj Khalifa? There are no camels. <laughs> <laughs> right, so people get like a weird impression about the Middle East. It's not like that, you know. Um, think of it like a cleaner, cleaner New York, safer New York. Um, just come here, have a look, spend two, three days. Everybody in the ecosystem is so open to talking, is so open to expanding their view, is so open to meeting people. There's no better way than to just be here. So that from a technology evangelist, we are back to visiting and face to face. Well, well, it's interesting. Um, like we're at a conference today, right? Um, well, it's tomorrow to be honest, but it, it officially starts. And today. we made great strides, I must say. We took COVID tests. Yes. We probably convinced our significant others and friends that this was worth it, and it's a very strange decision to make. Um, well, I mean, this is like the fourth time I've traveled in the last month. So yeah. for me, it's it's less it's less strange than the first time. But to me, it was worth the risk, and and I'll explain that. When COVID first started, and I was sort of trapped in my in my little office, I became extremely frustrated because I need to I need to talk to people. I need to know what's going on. Right. So I set up hundreds of Zoom calls. Yeah. I just got on LinkedIn. And just went nuts. Started adding people left and right because I was so frustrated. And those were great. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. They literally pale in comparison to a face-to-face -face meeting. As digital as I want to be, I'm still an analog being, right? And I still need to see the person. I still, you know, think about wearing masks. Like it's not a big deal. I wear masks all the time. I literally think you should do it. It's the least you can do that has the most sort of Uh, toning down of the exponential growth factor, right? We, we, there's lots of data. Com countries that wear masks sort of put it down. But you do cover about 40% of your nonverbal cues. Yes. And what I found out, which is really weird, when I order my Starbucks now, I literally can't hear the lady. It's weird. I can hear her in terms of actually hearing her, but I can't understand her. I've had that same experience. Isn't that odd? Yeah, it's very strange. We are so analog. Well, yeah, I mean, we interpret, I mean, I think human beings, yeah. we interpret the signals we get. And when you get 100%. so many, so much distortion or so much less, yeah. you have to think about it in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really odd. So, so as much value as I see in Zoom, and I will definitely travel much, much less in the future. Uh, I mean, I, I signed, um, you know, a $200 million agreement over Zoom with a country, company that, I, with a company that I ever met, um, which was great. But to me, that's an outlier. Yeah. So I will travel much less, but I still see the need to meet people, yeah. to engage them. Um, you know, I found that Zoom calls are very formal. Mm. Whereas when you're having dinner with someone, you just get, you get taken into strange corners. And that's where the magic happens. Yeah. Um, so it's not just with new people that you'd like to meet them face to face. Also with, with people getting to know them better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, th th there's just something very magical about being with someone. Yeah. There's just something very, uh, it's really where the creativity happens, right? That's why I'm not so convinced that we're in a, you know, a zero office world. Uh, we're definitely still in a, in a, in a sort of office -y world, much mm -hmm. less probably. Yeah. 
but we still need to see each other. So the office won't die, cities won't die. Cities will never die, no. Cities will never, I mean, people who say New York will die are just really not thinking right. Uh, it will not die. Mm. Young, maybe the old people will move out, maybe worried people will move out. Young people It'll will be move a rebirth in. more than a percent. 100%. Who doesn't want to go live in New York when you're 19 years old? So does that mean real estate will uh, will come back to? It's hard to say. Yeah. It's really hard to say. It's going to fluctuate. Uh, and, and, and again, whatever happened, whenever there's sort of this real estate problem, what happens? The very good buildings and the very, you know, prime properties and prime locations maintain their value. It's sort of the surrounding boroughs, suburbs that lose their value. So... New York Prime, maybe not. The boroughs might fluctuate. I thank you very much for all these observations. No and, problem. Uh, Anytime. I'm glad we got to do this face-to-face. Face-to-face, 100%. Yeah. And it was a different conversation from the one we had virtually. Uh, honestly, yes. Yeah. Um, I can't explain. Well, I can explain it, but it's yeah. just we are just very analog. Yeah. Uh, who, who says it? Uh, Elon Musk said we're just meat bags. And, you know, the AI, AI is going to wonder what these meat bags want. We're just analog meat bags, trying <laughs> well, to live in a digital world. Right. Well, uh, I, I like uh, I like meat bags, and yeah, in, in the case. end of the day, yes, hundred yeah, percent. All right. Well, thank have, you so much, Tron, for having me. Yes. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. You have just listened to episode 57 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of family office investing. Our guest was Sidney Wheatley, CIO in the private office of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Salman bin Abdullah bin Hamad Al Khalifa from the Kingdom of Bahrain. In this conversation, we talked about the future of family office investing, trends, in family office investment portfolios, global shifts, industry trends, foresight, tech investing, fintech and blockchain, new consumption patterns for multimedia and film, and other emerging sector plays. Diversification during times of turmoil, the Bahrain Economic Vision 2030, the changing nature of the petroleum industry, towards the post-petroleum world and a post-virus world. What does the next decade look like? My takeaway is that family office investing is adjusting to global events, innovative opportunities and societal disruption with diversification and increased emphasis on technology startups as a new asset class. However, traditional assets such as real estate, industry, and manufacturing still stays strong. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player. 
and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.